This is The Huddle Podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Stolo. Today I'm talking with Donna Tarkadu. Donna is a palliative care physician. Many years of practicing, being with those who are dying, has inspired Donna to discover new ways of living. I talk with her about the impact this has had on her life, her way of being in the world, and the way it has transformed her understanding of how we show up and accompany those who are struggling with their health. Donna shares powerful insight into the experience of being with those who are suffering and how it can invite us to discover deeper living. Donna, welcome to the Huddle Podcast. Thank you, Mark, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell people a little bit about what you do. What's what's your day-to-day work like? It changes, actually, lately. It's been very fluid. Um, the foundation of it, however, is uh, I am part of several teams that provide care for people who are at the end of their lives. And we try to create an experience that is really aligned with, I would say, I would describe it, the totality of, of what the end of life means for each individual. So I'm a palliative care physician by training um, and have been working with a not-for-profit hospice organization for the last 10 years. Do you make a conscious choice to go into palliative care? Was there a point in your medical training where you said, this is where I need to be in service to others? Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, the for the last, I would say, maybe 10 years or so, I didn't start in a home care setting. I didn't start in hospice. I started in the academic setting of care. And, and reflecting back, there was no particular, you know, turning point or or personal trauma that has pushed me on this path. Or it was a, a very organic, natural progression. I would say. I, I think I think I just intuitively I had this uh, built-in intuition that has naturally put me on this path. And I and I think it had to do with my curiosity for understanding people, their multidimensionality, mm-hmm. and not just stay focused on the disease process or the technical elements of care. I was more driven towards the humane aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's an interesting discipline, uh, the discipline of palliative care, because so much of the healthcare promise, so to speak, I guess at least what's glorified in healthcare, and you you could look at that from an investment perspective, where money goes, where people go, where our narratives go, is on the um, he, he, let's call it the curing side of the healthcare experience. Like a lot of our attention and public narrative focuses on the, the fixing side, hope as a fundamental concept that's built into health. Uh, the hope of a cure, the hope of a fix, the hope of healing. You went into a space where, quote-unquote, there is no fix in the conventional sense. There is no end. There, there is no living end to the disease, so to speak. But you discovered something there that is extremely profound, 
that has resonance for for the rest of the healthcare narrative. And I want to talk a bit about and unpack a bit about what you found being mm. in sharing space with people who are at the end of life. So let's let's unpack that a little bit, see where that goes. What what did you what were some really salient truths that emerged out of being in the presence with people who were at end of life? that you think have far-reaching meaning for those who are still living? Yeah, one of the, one of the um, things that I've learned very early on is that there is no script to how you accom- accompany something at the end of their lives. And, and there is this uh, very strong element of the unknown that you have to get used to while you are in the presence of, of those who are at different moments. It doesn't have to be for those who are very close people, you know, at the end of life period. I don't actually like to call it the end of life because it's um, the, the, the focus of the model. It's, it's on the, it's on the celebration of life. It's, it's, it's on, empowering people and giving them the tools to be able to make the most out of whatever it is that it's it's left in terms of the length it's not so much about how much time you squeeze out of your end of life it's more about the quality mm-hmm. that you get out of that time so one piece is was this this element of learning how to really surrender to the unknown um and be able to creatively be there without forcing any specific outcomes. So, like you said, holding space without intervening. It's a, it's a different quality of, uh, of presence. So, there are, you know, the way the system is designed, unfortunately, there are certain expectations that people have, uh, um, particularly for when when we talk about different roles in, in the palliative care team. Um, so there are expectations from, you know, a physician, for instance, to come in and and most of the time approach the conversation from a, a prescriptive, I would say, or, or rather directional angle um, instead of... Uh, uh, one of one that is more exploratory, right? So if you go there, if you go there and you do a lot of listening, which is part of of the of the practice that you engage in, um, there are moments where you know people are not actually they're not comfortable with that. You know, they expect you as a as an expert to go in and just give directions and share your knowledge and be very uh, explanatory rather than exploratory, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, I have observed my own evolution and realized that also for me to be able to create the best quality of, of the experience for myself as well, I had to move away from that element of being um, in, a, in a role where I... I don't, 
I don't have enough space for myself to to manifest my own, you know, I don't know exactly how to articulate that. <laughs> yeah. So um, that, that's one of the things that I've learned. The other one is um, the way that I, my life evolved as a part. I, I, I would say my entire, this is not a job, right? When you go into this field, it's, you can't do it as a job that you go in nine to five and, you know, you do your visits, you do your documentation. And, and it's, it doesn't work like that because if you're not, on committed to a, to a path of self-discovery and insight and growth and so on, um, it's very difficult to stay in it. Um, and so for me, the major lesson was it, it's a constant inspiration and an invitation. It's a constant inspiration to continue to discover, to explore, to stay open, um, to be in the present moment, to um, not delay any any anything that I want to do for a later time and just be fully engaged in life and savor minute of it. Yeah. Not having worked in palliative care, having accompanied very few people in my life at, at the end of life. Um, what stands out to me, at least from my own experience and understanding is that, you're having a very vivid experience of someone. I'm sure sometimes there is some peacefulness, but I would also assume that there is a high threshold of suffering, whether it's being expressed by the person who is at, who is in that stage, in that later stage of life, or from family members who I who are often present uh, with that person. So it makes sense to me that you speak to the qualities of the unknown and the unknowable because suffering has a the impermanent has a unique way of making us very vividly aware of a quality of impermanence right, right. because the suffering mostly grows out of the the need to release right that letting go is where most of the suffering grows right. out of and the idea also of surrender which you brought up, surrendering to the to the experience of what is happening. Yeah, these are two concepts that are very antithetical to the healthcare universe. Let's call it the con. I'll, for the lack, I'll just call it the conventional healthcare universe. And I think people will know what I'm talking about. And and I apologies for the overgeneralization, but just for the sake of creating contrast. Where does so? Where does surrender? So people will say, "Okay, that's that's all well good in the pal you know palliative care space. That makes sense, right?" So we can talk about. It seems it seems to induce or a conversation about quote unquote these spiritual or philosophical ideas. But listen, I'm in the doctoring space. People mm -hmm. come to me to be fixed. Mm -hmm. You know, they come to me for solutions. Yeah, um, no one's paying me for surrender. Uh, <laughs> I can't build surrender, yeah. all right? I can't build surrender and I can't build impermanence. Uh -huh. These, mm -hmm. I don't know what those things mean. But what do they mean? Because they have such far-reaching implications for how we can, I think, evolve our understanding of the healthcare experience. Because I think when you look, you strip it back, healthcare 
there is the wellness side. There is the well-being side, the, the state of being in what you feel is a state of health and promoting that. But a lot of healthcare is the accompaniment of people who are suffering in some capacity. Yeah. That's what, if you strip it back, call it what you want, disease, illness, chronic, acute, you know, those are, I call those window dressings for accompanying someone in the experience of suffering. Where does surrender, impermanence, enhance how we accompany someone who is suffering at, at whatever degree of suffering? Um, my, my experience is that it's a, it's a process, right? You can't expect somebody who is, um, let's take the example of cancer. It's you are young, relatively young, you're in your 30s and are unfortunate to get diagnosed with cancer in, let's say, a stage that could or could not be treatable um, or cured. 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 There are two elements that I, I have observed. So people who are already have a practice, let's say a contemplative practice, a practice where they have had opportunities to reflect, you know, on meaning in life or on purpose. They have, uh, you know, some element of connection with a universal, the universal source of creation. Some, but some people who are have a spiritual practice or whatever it is. It could be prayer, it could be faith, it could be um, anything. Um, they, they are able to navigate this, these changes differently um, because they already have some tools to work with, right? They're not completely exposed, naked. Oh my God, what am I going to do now? I'm so vulnerable and dependent on others to care for me and help me. Those who don't have that and arrive in this moment um, surprised, right? As if it's, oh my God, and why is this happening to me? The anger element comes into play, uh, the denial and so on and so forth. They, they need not only more support, but they also... <clears throat> In themselves, they need longer time to digest all that. And, and so it's not so much about forcing the process or, or flooding them with a lot of, uh, you know, support. Like it, in, in, you sometimes observe in the healthcare space, there is this, there's this, this uh, overwhelming, you know, um, outpour of information and oh you, you have to do this you go to this support group you know you have to speak with this friend there is this health app and blah 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 so it becomes very noisy and people and it's very distracting um for a lot of people and so it's more about again it's 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 about allowing them to choose their own path it's so important i mean if you if you try to force the direction, oh, you 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 go this way or you go this way, you there is there is a lot of value in education, right? But it's so important how you articulate those those ideas that are meant to educate people, and and it's um in in the U.S. at least there is this uh, mentality that again people are looking at doctors and and nurses and so on for 
to give them to give them a, a legitimate direction, right? It's it's validated, it's real, and so on. And yes, there is a lot of value in that. However, it, the more space you create for people to make their own choices, the sooner they arrive where they need to arrive. My ex, my lived experience is that it's not for you to decide where they need to arrive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You are not in charge of that. Mm -hmm. That's not your role. Mm -hmm. Your role is to hold space, to continue to show up. I think showing up is the most important element uh, where people have, you know, a way to reach you. They they need, they need know to, that you're there for them. That's why the, this, this model of palliative care is created interdisciplinary. So there are several people. It's not a one-man show, right? So there are several people available to provide different levels of support in their own capacity and and bring in you know their own skills and and that's what makes it so multidimensional because you're touching upon several dimensions of suffering mm -hmm. and with that you know in time the 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 focus shifts from suffering to to joy and and actually empowering them to to, to be able to tap into those moments where the simplest things, like, you know, I, I, you cuddle with your pets or, you know, your, your kids are there for you and, you know, you share moments of, of intimacy. I, I'm talking about intimacy at the end of life. Like, there are so many situations. I have witnessed so many beautiful moments where, you know, couples or partners who have been together for, you know, uh, a while, they, they are able to create this very intimate space, you know, and even though there is no, not necessarily anything sexual about it, there is this very profound intimacy that they're able to nourish it and, and enhance it in a way that I think it's one of the most beautiful things you can you can be, you know, part of um, in those moments. Yeah, when I heard you speaking, what kind of was reverberating in my mind was that the trajectory of being in an experience where there's a kind of there is this quality of suffering is a the richness is in the meaning making. Mm -hmm. So when you describe people who have been diagnosed, who have been through a process of meaning-making, however that has taken form. Yeah. What they have done is developed some perspective through inquiry, through practice, through some level of awareness of, let's just, let's just for the sake of simplicity say, have a more clarity about who they are. Yeah. And the, the presence of the suffering or the illness or the disease doesn't become the center point of their entire existence, so to speak. Mm -hmm. There's a frame of reference, right? Like, yeah. I sense that in their own meaning-making process that they can relate to that suffering with a certain quality, whereas someone who may have not yet done that inquiry, quickly overwhelmed by the wave of that suffering becomes almost central to their entire life narrative. It's almost inescapable. This is, you know, 
what I would say people who maybe more deeply embody this notion of patienthood, where the disease becomes literally like the sole preoccupation, the only thing we attend to. And I have also experienced the sense that people who are in a relationship with that suffering and that illness go through a meaning-making process that can be extremely liberating. Whether the, the illness is present or not present, whether it is quote-unquote cured or not cured. Yeah. It's, that, it's an accelerated path to meaning-making. It is, yeah. Know? It's like, exactly, it's like it's meaning-making on steroids, so to speak. Because yeah. Because uh, it's vivid. It's, it's like, yeah, welcome to yeah. the world of suffering, so to speak. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, it's whether you like it or not, you're already there, and mm-hmm. you've got to find a way to, you know, to, to show up. But I, however, I have to say, you know, in an ideal world, uh, if you think about it, the invitation is there for everyone. Everybody gets the memo, you know. But <laughs> but not, uh, uh, not company wide memo. What yes. That, what does but, that read like, dear everyone? Yeah. Um, yes. Suffering is inevitable. Uh, yeah. Please do not forget to clean the microwave after you you use it. Yeah. 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 But however, I have to say, even we have this idealistic, I you know. Um, wish that people will arrive there prior to dying i have to tell you you know that not everybody makes it so um so even if the intention is there and you 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 do your best to create that space and and offer as much as you can you know for them to to take the steps and and so on and there are plenty of humans who uh, have a different attitude towards that. And, you know, you, it, it, when you talk about what's a good death, what's a bad death, I don't think anybody knows, you know, because who decides what's a good death and what's a bad death, right? Yeah, it's, I, it, it's probably a lot in the eye of the beholder as well. I mean, the, the person going through the dying experience um, probably, sure. yeah, it's probably has some sense, some of their own sense about, Yes, and and that manifests that manifests you know a lot of the internal emotional spiritual struggles translating to you know symptoms that come to surface as physical you know symptoms and and unfortunately the uh, prescriptive model is that oh you know you gotta go and intervene on on what you see on the outside right and and most of the time people miss miss the point that no matter how much morphine you give somebody, you know, whose breathing is fast, or no matter how much, you know, morphine you give somebody who is expressing pain in a physical way, it's not going to solve it, right? It's not going to alleviate that element of internal suffering. So that's when it gets really complicated. Um, When you have to learn to almost, I I wish there was this... um, this is my secret wish. I wish there was a quantum sensor, right? <laughs> and you go in and, and you, you scan, you know, people from top to bottom. Right. And, and you're able to capture the, the nuances, right? Um, what we're doing right now, it's a very, I would say, primitive method of, of deciding. And it's so, so much influenced by our own you know, uh, experiences and conditioning and so on. So if you if you 
are treated by, if you are cared for by somebody who has their own, you know, um, traumatic uh, past and, and so on, there is a lot of uh, counter-transference. Mm-hmm. So these decisions are made based on, and what you were mentioning before, the other elements that are coming from the family members who project their own anxiety and fear right. and, and guilt right. and whatnot. And it gets very, it gets very dirty, the space, right? right. And so that's why uh, removing this, this uh, notion of uh, this duty, right, that you have the duty to fix something that is unfixable, I think it completely recalibrates, you know, someone's uh, someone's uh, practice design. Um, yeah, it also invites you to um, show up differently in the sense of showing. Let's call it showing up more openly. Yeah. Certainly, if if you're looking at the world through an empirical scientific lens, and which is really what dominates the treatment uh, narrative, what can be seen can be treated. Absolutely, nothing inherently wrong with that discipline. Mm-hmm. It just underservices the range of experience that someone is actually having when they're going through a meaning making process, a highly subjective process. Yeah, it's a reductive model. Yeah. You're reducing to whatever you're familiar with. Correct. That's what it is. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot right. of that going on in healthcare. A lot of that. Yeah. It's because yeah. it's because it's you know, it's the narrative that dominates healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um I was listening recently to a physicist talk to a Buddhist scholar and they were talking about the nature of consciousness. So physicists are like staunch materialists, right? They only look at observable phenomenon. And this Buddhist scholar brought up the idea that it's um, a shame that in our inquiry into the nature of reality, which is what physicists are fundamentally concerned with, that we haven't had the... um, the good sense, so to speak, to turn to traditions that are thousands of years old, Mm -hmm. that all they do is inquire into the nature of reality, right? So like the Buddhists devote an inordinate amount of energy into an inquiry into reality, look, and, and take, and, and in some senses, looking at that through a subjective, right? So kind of an introspective lens, literally examining the nature of reality. And I, I sense that we have the same problem in healthcare, that this reductionist model of how we understand suffering and our responsibility to eliminate suffering, because there is that narrative, it dominates the healthcare space, which in and of itself is just a false narrative because there is no elimination of suffering. For every disease you will cure, something else will spring up. Um, nature abhors that kind of vacuum. It simply... It simply doesn't abide by that principle. Um, mm-hmm. There's, there's always, there's a constant oscillating. So, impermanence is inevitable, and with impermanence comes suffering, and it'll express itself in a multitude of forms, and you inevitably have to deal with it. What, what you cure today will be your illness tomorrow. I think the invitation to healthcare practitioners to draw on more wisdom, to draw mm-hmm. on a deeper well of wisdom, which includes their own subjective experience and becoming mindful and aware of that experience. And when you say how they show up, I mean, I think you are in many ways talking about the full breadth of showing up. Not, yeah. I'm not talking about like your lab coat is clean and 
Thank you for sanitizing your. Um, <laughs> of uh, course. You're listening it's that, to it. Yeah. Um, no, it's about the quality of the energy that you bring into the space. Right. Um, and you know, I just I just want to show you something because I have this beautiful book that I I pull out of my bookshelf for for this conversation and. It's um you were we were talking about invitations. The, the word invitation comes up a lot. So it's one of um uh it's called the Five Invitations uh, by Frank Kostavsevsky. I don't know if you are familiar with him. He's a he's a Buddhist practitioner. He is uh he was one of the founders of uh, Zen Hospice mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who has worked with people. Uh, at the end of life, since the the time of the epidem- AIDS epidemic in the 80s and late 70s and so on. So he, this book, the five invitations that he mentions here are the following. Um, the first is don't wait. The second is welcome everything, push away nothing. The third one is bring your whole self to the experience. Find a place of rest in the middle of things and cultivate don't know mind. <laughs> so I hate, so, to, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if I invert every one of those principles, yeah. it mostly sounds like what we do in healthcare right now. It's like, wait a lot. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, uh, don't wait in the sense in the sense that don't wait for things to do the no no no, I, no, no I know yeah. I know but but yeah. but honestly if I invert every one of those principles it sounds mostly like how we show up to practice healthcare but I guess yeah. this, this is my point is um god there's such a well of wisdom available to people in healing professions mm-hmm. um and I don't think look I don't think there's anything wrong with showing up with a certain discipline I don't need a painter to also be an architect to also be a plumber to also be a electrician you know, there's there's something about the quality of your expertise. I think the danger and the hazard is that you believe that your quote unquote partial view on things is the whole view on things. That's that's the trap. Okay, so we're hundred percent. Yeah, so we're not. <laughs> it's not a demotion of yeah. empirical science. Yeah, no, that, not at all. It's a perspective. It's, about, it's a perspective, and you have to, to keep keeping that humility right that you don't know what you don't know mm-hmm. and when you show up in these conversations with people who you know have a, have had a totally different experience of suffering and meaning that came out of that experience you are in no position to share things that might com- be completely contradictory to to their experience you know what i'm saying so so it's more about it's more about merging perspectives it's more about finding a way to to expand the container of compassion on both sides right that's what it is because the other person who has or has to do some work in in allowing the care to happen mm-hmm. right because there are some people who are very uh rigidly uh comfortable in their own narrow space that is very constricted and is very anti like uh, uh, opposite to to being open to be cared for so you know it takes a lot of effort to break through that so again it's it's uh, i would call it almost it's a, it's this this skill of allowing 
the release and the softening, the relaxation mm. to occur. You know, when you get in that, into that relaxed, relaxed state and you are able to culture that, to nurture it, to, to cultivate it, sorry, not culture, to cultivate it, it's, it's, uh, it just changes, it changes the energy. And I think it's also, when you talk about your own opening, it's for the healthcare professionals who are listening, it's it's also an invitation to release your expectation that you are there to fix. Mm-hmm. Because that's going to invite a lot of tension. Yep. We did a webinar recently about uh, burnout, and we were talking about it through a moral and spiritual lens. And that preoccupation with fixing, in a way, is its own recipe for burnout. Because Mm -hmm. for every success, you will have a failure. And um, it probably too narrowly defines what what the fullness of your role can actually be in the presence of someone. It it invites tension. It certainly invites instant tension. Um, And it, yeah, and it it just drops both, you know, all the parties were involved from the, of the opportunity to discover. Right and explore. That's yeah. That's another brilliant point. Yeah, it 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 um it seizes exploration. It it Mm -hmm. it confines the exploration because it's diagnostic. You know, when you're in a diagnostic mindset, you're you know what you're looking for, so to speak, or you believe you know what you're looking for, and then you know what you're supposed to do to fix it, and you're never looking for what you can't see. Exactly. And, and, and this is the other thing that I, I've learned during the last 10 years of practicing, you know, hospice uh, care, is that there's nothing to fix, you know, at the end of life. There's nothing to fix. There's nothing broken, you know. Again, it's, a, it's about, it's about um, the ability to show up. And don't, trust me, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy. You know, it's 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 not about just showing up and, and being having the best intentions and so on. It's it's a it's a it's very uh, it's a very dense space, right? And and again, it 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 depends um, on all the preconditioning. It depends on where you are. It depends on your own evolution, right? On how you continue to be able to to show up with the best quality of energy possible. But it takes intentional effort. This is this is this is what I'm tr- I'm trying to say. It's not it's not a the kind of uh, you know, um, and I don't want to offend anybody. It's not a it's not a it's not a fixed science, right? It's not like I'm a pathologist. I go under the microscope and I look at those cells. Those cells are reproducing differently. Their nuclei are enlarged and so on. These are malignant. These are not malignant. And and it's a pretty standardized pattern of right looking at things. There is no standardization, you know, and when you're caring for somebody who 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 is dying, and and it's so important this element what you guys do at Hotel and to all the other platforms that you know um, I'm familiar with from you know from some of the shared work that we do is is this this focus on 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 the importance of the the paying attention to your own transformation, staying very committed. To that, to that practice of self-discovery, uh, uh, gaining more insight, getting to know yourself, getting to understand how you interact with with everybody around you, 
getting to know who you are so you can continue to adjust and 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 enhance your own your own being overall the totality of your own being to be able to practice like this because it's it otherwise you're it's a it's a it's a it's a lost battle i i, I think people that's why people get burned out in this yeah. in this field because they are they are um, they get um overwhelmed by the immensity of the task yeah right yeah. if you think about it like that i think about it like um so when someone is in a state of suffering, the, the overall energetic disposition I describe is often contracted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did you bring food for everyone? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yes, I do. I yeah, have a bar. Sorry. I do have a bar. <laughs> <laughs> we'll send virtually the, mm. the, the bar to everyone. The, um, yeah, I so, thought you wouldn't notice. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> The, uh, yeah, so it's a state of contraction. Mm-hmm. The fixer also shows up in a state of contraction. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, unfortunately in this scenario, two negatives, so to speak, don't make a positive, right? Like that's the, the integer rule doesn't apply here. Alternatively, when someone's in a contracted state, it requires, um, and you step into that, their space with openness, radical mm-hmm. openness. Wow, something magical happens then. Yeah, the shift. Yeah, it's a shift. Yes. In your Mm -hmm. space, um, they actually start becoming more spacious as well because they feel that space. Right. The space to feel, the space to think, the space to sense, the space to explore their suffering, the space to question. All of that requires space. Make no bones about it. It's not just volition. It's actually space. Yeah. So, you know, this this idea that we, we talked about in, different um, conversations, you know, you and I, and the, the idea of uh, being the care, that care is actually the energy that you're in. It's not an act of, you know, I care for you, like this is not a verb. It's, it's actually, I mean, it's being in, in a caring, embodying the care, being in a caring environment, but that you are the care. You're not, it's not a transactional thing. I give you the care, give me the care. Back. There's two units of care. Call me in the morning. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes. I know. Two but milligrams, it sounds like two milligrams of care here in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go up on the dogs. And but it's, but joking. Like I mean, we're joking about that, but literally it expresses itself in those forms and those metaphors all the time. Mm-hmm. Here's two milligrams of care in the form of drug X, or here's mm-hmm. five milligrams in the form of treatment Y. It is that. So we again, when you talk about reductionist, it, it's so. Of course, if if you walk into a space and someone is feeling highly contracted, and the only way you know how to cope, the only coping mechanism you've developed is a, is your own contraction, mm-hmm. and a lot of that language comes out of this clinical distance. Maintain mm-hmm. clinical distance at all costs. Like, don't get it into an intersubjective relationship with these two entities. Because again, mm-hmm. we don't trust the professionals can create the space to both be present with themselves and present with another. Not sure why we assume that. Um, maybe I mean, I think people people don't trust it because it's not demonstrated, right? It's, well, it's, is, it's not trained as well, right? So it's like we haven't legitimized the the yeah. experience of of 
being spacious and present and in an intersubjective dynamic with someone. Um, so f because we don't train it and there's no evidence to support it, so to speak, with that training, uh, we don't trust it. And so we create a different barrier, a different rule is just maintain your distance. Um, and I'm not talking here about projection. That That's another animal. Like when we talk about presence, someone who can fully attend to their own experience while being open to someone else's experience. And we know that's possible. So that's not like some radical notion that, that you know, that's been, people have been doing that for thousands of years. Teachers do that, mentors do that, guides do that. Many healthcare professionals have developed, honed the capability to do that because in their own discipline, in their own practice, they've learned to invite space, be witness to that space. And so of course they can be witness to someone else's suffering in a deeply compassionate way without being lost in it. Like this kind of radical compassion of bearing witness to someone without feeling lost in that, without Donna becoming the thing, the centerpiece of the room, because she can't somehow hold herself and hold another at the same time. So all that is plausible. It is, but it's, it's I mean, the practice, <laughs> to, to apply it in practice, it's very difficult because, you know, just to give you an example well, you of hone, the model. You have to hone that skill. Not, not only that, yeah. but you have to have time to apply it, right? So if you, I'm just going to give an example. If you are in a outpatient palliative care practice where, you know, the expectation based on the work RVUs is to see 10 people or 15 people a day, yeah. like a, an assembly line kind of situation, right? Mm -hmm. It's how do you think you you would be able to constantly return to to that to that quality of your energy and constantly be it, it almost turns into a state of hypervigilance right because right. you're like oh my god I, so it's it's so it is so important to be allowed to to have the time to create this space right you can't do that in a 15 minute follow-up in a palliative clinic yeah and that's that's where the conflict is it's not i don't think that people Yes, the training is very important. The ongoing self-work, right, and, and, and that is essential. But also the system has to meet you halfway and give you, you know, give you, yeah. give you the time to, to have this opportunity to apply these things. Yeah. yeah. And otherwise I, it creates more frustration. You yeah, know? And I also, I, you know, like space also begets space in the sense that as you are in presence with others, uh, and you invite that presence in themselves, you, you use the word empowerment, uh, there's a different kind of uh, agency that grows out of that. Mm -hmm. The capacity to inquire, to validate, to become self-aware of your own experience are very, very um, powerfully autonomous-making tools. doesn't mean that they don't invite relationship and wanting to be in relationship, but they do provide you a contemplative skill or a certain skill of inquiry that does foster a certain kind of independence where, yeah. where a, a broken fix model actually nurtures increasing degrees of dependence. Correct. You become addicted to being fixed. Um, yeah. and I, and I am using those metaphorically, um, not commenting on people who are dealing with actual addictions, but you do become addicted to that fix. Um, so I've used that phrasing, the Humpty Dumpty model of up the wall falling off, back up the wall falling off, and 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 mm -hmm. and our 
So you use the um, kind of the factory floor metaphor, uh, and I think there is that. So it's on a turnstile. It keeps revolving around. Not only do you not have time, but the system mm-hmm. is baked so that the person keeps showing back up in that system because really you haven't supported them in creating more space in their own lives. So, yeah. you know, you've basically said, um, trust me, I'm the expert and uh, I'll continue, I'll, you know, I will. And you have it. to keep coming back to me yeah. to give <laughs> right. you the solutions. Yeah. Right. Right. This is solution yeah. central. So just right. make sure when you need the fix that you keep coming back. And of course, then people get frustrated because those maybe different than the US but in Canada those set, those solution centers are not easy to access all the time there's waiting waiting time you got to wait mm-hmm. for a solution mm-hmm. you know so it's cyclical in a in a way um but i appreciate the fact that in your own practice um being in the presence of people who are at at that stage of their life and i appreciate that metaphorical correction um because I think it's also important to understand that 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 it is a stage of life that you actually also encounter in 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 micro moments, spiritual moments. Yeah, throughout your you life. want to talk about microdosing on that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was alluding to the idea that uh, we're kind of referencing the f- we've been referencing a lot the the stage of life where one loses one's body, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak, where the body drops off. But people go through all kinds of living and dying experiences moment to moment at microorganic levels and then at psychological levels and spiritual levels. You know, that we're experiencing this constant oscillation of letting go and yes. release. And um, and all the same guidelines apply, so to speak, um, which, yeah. is, which I think is the undercurrent of our conversation. But, but I mean, let me ask you this. How many, how many, how, how many of... How many humans do you know that actually pay attention to those micro moments and, have... and read them, read them as such, right? To yeah. say, hey, this is, a, this is an opportunity for me to learn. This is, this is an opportunity for me to practice letting go. This is an opportunity for me to see this as a, as a mini death that I can, you know, continue yeah. to. So, Attentive, how many? Attentively, how many? <laughs> yeah, att- attentively. I mean, I happen Maybe I have, I guess, what would be called spiritual privilege because I'm surrounded by a lot of people who are very engaged in their own inquiry process, their mm-hmm. own meaning-making process. So we often talk about or they reflect back to me this their own journey into letting go and into these moments of release. Mm-hmm. Um, but conventionally, I know that this is not a, a, let's call it a popular narrative, I mean, we, yep. we live certainly in an acquiring kind of narrative. There's the majoritarily we we are socialized to believe in an acquiring narrative. This view of life of like this never-ending uh, pathward upwards narrative. I don't. None of that is holds water for me in my experience. But um, but all of those things um, reflect a quality of like people say, "What's dying like?" And I say, well, what's letting go like? Talk to me mm-hmm. about a time where you were invited to release something. Like yeah. a very, very nagging thought, a very nagging, unpleasant thought. What was that release like for you? What was holding on to that like for you? Like people talk about the mystery of death. Uh, 
I don't think it's all that mysterious, to be quite honest with you. Um, the, we all go through different degrees of vivid experiences of death. Letting go of a partner. I mean, it's all around us. It's everywhere around us. Abs- absolutely. Moment to moment. Um, every in and out breath is a moment of release. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if you want to know what death is like... Um, really inquire into an experience of letting go of something that you were previously very attached to. Being attached to your body, that that's one kind of release. You know, that we think of that as the final the final release. So it's, it seems very dire. It's like the last act, right? It's like, oh my God, the the big it's like the moment that so we build that moment into something that's enormous. Um, How about those like me who don't want to come back? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, like you heard me saying that I'm an aspiring non-returner, right? I mean, I just don't. Yeah, that's but another you, way of. But that's you come a way, back constantly, though. Wait, wait, wait. That's another form of clinging, right? To the like the yeah. idea that I don't want to come back, right. and right. and that could be in itself a source of suffering because oh, I don't want to return in another human, yes. whatever non-human you know, physical right. body, um, material. Um, it's very interesting because, yes, on this on this path of uh, uh, on a seeker's path, right, and you're constantly exploring, so there are so many different, um, so many moments when you can slide off, go off, <laughs> and, and become, you know, a spiritual snob and be like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I'm constantly on a different channel than the rest of the masses and I'm, you know, I'm better positioned to, to articulate uh, perspectives and ideas and about um, different spiritual experiences. My own experience, I think, is that death is, number one, the ultimate opportunity for self-expression. That's when and, you, and can I add to that that you don't have to wait to be dying to do that? Correct, yeah. correct. That's, that's why I call it the ultimate, almost like the last one that you have, right? Um, and and that's the invitation that I give to a lot of people that I, I work with is don't wait until you're yeah. on your deathbed to fully express who you are, right? And the second thing is learn how to self-regulate. That's the, I mean... Tap into the power of your mind and the wisdom and everything that it's already there. It's already there. The other material, the prime material that you need to work with, it's already there. Yeah. You just need to if, imagine if we were taught that in school instead of, yeah. you know, this complicated geometry and physics. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about instead of, but right. in addition to. Sure, sure. Yeah, you. Th- I like the. I like how you describe this in let's call it natural wisdom. You mm-hmm. already understand how to live and die. Mm. It's well within your, it, it's it's in your spectrum of wisdom and intelligence. Uh, for being of nature, you understand this. Plus, there's like, God knows how many constant indicators of this happening in your immediate surrounding. Um, mm-hmm. A tree knows how to live and die. Uh, it knows how to release and to re regenerate. Um, so I think I agree with you. That that's, that is a beautiful invitation. 
And, and I think that's another reason why inviting practitioners who are working with people who are suffering, that whether it's at a stage of a later part of life or that 14-year-old that you talked about who's diagnosed with cancer, mm-hmm. that if you don't think for a second that you are in the discipline of making meaning of that suffering experience, that letting go uh, experience, something is very, very, uh, is something is missing, something is absent, or there's something that you're not attending to. And, uh, you know, our work in people before patients in a way is a, is I think at some level about a restoration Mm -hmm. of that meaning making of that, of deepening the perspective, you know? So if you're looking at illness through an empirical lens, you're at a 5,000 foot altitude, nothing wrong with that. Let's, let's call that base camp. That's good. Fine. Great. What does it look like from a 10,000 foot perspective? It doesn't eradicate the 5,000 foot perspective. There's still that you're, you're, you can still make, do sense making through empirical science. But what do you see at 10,000 feet? Yeah, I think this is is another thing that I I have been fortunate and I'm extremely grateful for. Um, This I've developed the skill of uh, uh, allowing having a having a a unified perspective of the oneness. It's all one, right? And seeing the the paradoxes and how they. You know, they come together and, and just like that undercurrent of paradox that is the foundation of our being. And and then having the ability to rise above that and say that it's all one. You know what I'm saying? It's all one thing. It doesn't ha- you don't have to choose. Yeah. You know, you don't have to choose. This is the right way. This is the wrong way. This is the right religion. This is the wrong religion. <laughs> this is the right practice. Yeah. This is, it's not about that. It's about having the ability to integrate you know, and make like make sense through what you were exactly were saying. Me, meaning making it's ultimately I see it as an ability to to embrace the oneness yeah. of our experiences. Yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm a big. I'm a big integralist. I think it philosophically it aligns very strongly with my own what my own discoveries. Forget my own beliefs, but my own discoveries. Mm-hmm. And uh, philosophically, the notion that you know no one is wrong 100% of the time, or right 100% of the time, opens this notion of complementarity of perspectives. Right. Um, and in, in the experience of accompanying someone who is suffering, there's a very rich tapestry of perspectives, a very rich tapestry. And what I'm so, why I'm so, of the many reasons I'm grateful to have you in my life, and in, in our sharing, in our uh, experience of sharing this journey with people before patients and, and other th- other things that we're working on is that you welcome the invitation to explore these perspectives. And you do, and you're, I think in many ways, wholeheartedly committed in the, in the most modest way to being with others and inviting that perspective making as well. And um, 
that's a generous thing. That's a and generous I, ha- thing. I think I have also a, a, a very practical way of applying that <laughs> in my life. Sure. I take it from here, you know, from the, the like the intellectual uh, realm and drop it first through the practices that I have, drop it into down into my body. And then I do things like I, I do life. I live my life. I, I, I walk my talk. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I say that because just because I think, again, you can stay in that space of, you know, intellectualizing and, and trying to, you know, embellish it with all the nice words and, and whatever comes up and, and ideas and concepts and whatever on the other side, on the other side of it, if you're not living like that, you're wasting your time. Yeah. And that includes, um, allowing yourself to go through a vivid experience of embodied release. Um, so if you, if you want to be great at accompanying people in a dying process, go die. I mean, I hate mm-hmm. to say, I mean, I, don't <laughs> I, I, don't, yeah. I, I assume everyone understands. I don't mean that. I mean that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Go, go explore. Yeah. Go, go explore with an open presence. What release feels like. I have some suggestions. <laughs> yeah. So why don't, okay. So why, we can, we can, in the spirit of uh, the tale uh. of this podcast dog, mm-hmm. why don't you um, share either something you do or something that you've experienced that would invite either healthcare professionals listening or people in a suffering mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. with some kind of, um, let's call it a release, a release practice. What, what, what would that, look and feel like so a couple of things that uh, have worked for me so I, I i like to speak from personal experience from lived experiences uh breath work is is one way and i'm talking about you know the higher level of holotropic breath for instance where you have access to there is an invitation to access a non-ordinary state of consciousness it's very simple to do. Yeah. Of course, it's, 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 there is a moment of, uh, uh, there is a moment of, uh, I think to, to, to bring it back to reality, it's, you talk about release, release, you know, learning to release. Prior to releasing, if you're actually leaving these experiences, you're very familiar with that moment when there is a crescendo tension Right, and it is that moment of tension before release. Mm-hmm. What I I have learned that it's actually one of the most difficult things is to stay in that tension for a while, for a little bit, if, instead of just jumping immediately into the release uh, phase. Mm. You know, it's almost like you're feeding into the same instant gratification narrative. I'm avoiding the tension to go straight to the moment of uh, bliss, right, and release. So holotropic breath is a practice that teaches you to do that because it's a, it's a, it's a very, um, you have no way of escaping the tension <laughs> unless you change immediately, you know, your breathing pattern. Right. But if you're, if you're, it, it, it becomes very automatic after a while. So you can't really escape the tension. What so is, that's. Could you describe it? Is it is it too long and complex to describe, or you could describe um, at least a basic? I, I, I don't. Want, 
the basic practice is basically you you engage in a in a pattern of breathing that is very fast okay um uh, with different levels of you know lengths between the inspiration and the expiration okay. but the idea is that it is a faster pace of breath that actually causes a chemical change in your in the pH of the blood in the level of um, nitric oxide it actually causes a change in the level of uh, nitric oxide at mitochondrial level uh, so it it does allow you to transcend into a different state of consciousness we call them non ordinary states of consciousness you can achieve the same effect through you know a psychedelic uh, journey at a macro dose uh, you can as- achieve a similar experience through meditation where you get very deep into that state of uh, complete dissolution of your physical matter where basically your vibrational field gets so intense that it replaces your perception of of your physical boundaries and it 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 creates that space of you you have an out of body experience again it just doesn't happen if you meditate you know once a month <laughs> you know I mean, it happens only with consistent rigorous practice what i'm trying to say here it takes work yeah it takes intention it takes diligent effort you have to be committed to these practices you to be able to uh, to to create this this uh uh, uh recipe for you know uh, a better self regulation and nothing is perfect right you're not you're not a, you're not engaging these practices with the idea of, oh i'm going to be the best yoga practitioner i'm going to be the best uh, breath worker or be the best meditator it's never about that because the experiences are very different every day so 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 that's that's where you learn you learn about embracing the unknown because the practices in themselves are different uh every day so your experience in meditation is different on a, every every time you sit um so that element of uh, discovering every time you practice it's a new discovery so so it's it keeps you on that on that on in in that loop of uh, of constant curiosity hey you know when i sit on my cushion i'm like what is it how is it going to well, feel like yeah curiosity is a great word my, to be myself today right like mm. how does my body feel today and so mm. on so um yeah i mean and there are there are way more complicated practices sure. you know the practice of uh, rebirth uh yeah. you know death you can go meditations uh, death meditation sure. you can go and free dive and be completely oxygen deprived and have a beautiful out of body experience you have to be with somebody next to you to make sure that you don't <laughs> die you right. know That's you it. don't when, drown running out to free dive you don't drown yeah. in the water <laughs> and so but there are so many different ways yeah. and i think we're making this um what should i call them um the way to describe them is this we make this very limpy right attempts like 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 in a sense like you know we're, we're it's a right. it's a i tried we're, meditating we're, for like 90 seconds it was terrible i hated no, it no 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 it was overwhelming no, no. to me that no that limpy? no 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 limping in the sense that we're barely touching the surface yeah yeah I know. you know what i'm saying yeah we're yeah. barely touching the surface and there is so much more yeah out there for us to explore 
and and this is you know bringing it back into the space of death and dying you know we we look at that as the ultimate opportunity to explore and it's the, the chance we have to transcend right i don't know if we come back or whatever that's a totally different conversation about who comes back and in what shape or form to share whatever they learned from that transcendence but before that there are other ways of accessing that yeah and as long as you're you know imagine how much i think you know in, related to what you were saying before this 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 uh, model of uh, you know consumerism and acquiring and achieving and, and so on it's just it keeps us very limited it's like this uh, you know everybody talks metaphorically about the the uh, uh, breaking the ceiling right in corporations break the ceiling <laughs> i'm like oh my god just break the ceiling on totally different in a to ceilings, yeah. no in a totally different manner break the ceiling allow your mind yeah. to explore spaces that are so much i mean not necessarily better not necessarily better it's not about you know this this uh demented comparison between this is this is better than this no it's about what is it that you're learning from those experiences that you can bring back and integrate in your real life yeah it's it's i <clears throat> yeah the the question of better i think is an interesting one it's because there's a there's a subtle trap there but let's just call it perspective making again yes. it's it's like i like the analogy of the mountain because being at 5000 being at 30000 feet isn't necessarily better than 5000 feet mm -hmm. unless your only achievement is to climb to the top of the mountain then yes you would say qualitatively it's better up here because that was my goal but we're not talking about that we're really talking about simply inv inviting a deepening of perspective yes let's abandon the word better or worse because at 5,000 feet, you're not bad. You're just, there's a certain perspective that you're looking out at the world in. It's, I said to someone today, it's like looking out of the universe through a toilet paper roll or through Hubble telescope. Mm -hmm. You're still looking out at the world. The perspective mm -hmm. is very, very different. Yes. It's just, it's fundamentally different. One is more expansive. One mm -hmm. is a little less expansive. I'm still, I could still be looking at a, through a toilet paper roll at a, a beautiful robin on a tree and that and it's inherently beautiful and lovely. And then when you look through a Hubble telescope, there's just so many more wonders. Mm -hmm. And again, it doesn't mean that all those wonders fit into everyone's universe, right? Because there are some people who are overwhelmed by the wonder, Yeah. right? There are people who simply want to have a very simple, yeah. Uh, you know, a bland, bland perspective, and and that's what it is. It's 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 more about um, honoring that, you know. Yeah, I think honoring. That's, yeah, okay. honor honor what everybody like wh whatever you are and whoever, whatever, however you arrive there, is not about constantly comparing ourselves to each other. Sure. It's it's more about you know this is who you are. I still like you you're my friend i i i you know i i want to to learn from you we're growing together we're learning new things but i'm not here to fix you i'm nothing if there is anything that i can do to inspire you it's this is you know putting bringing it back to to that relationship between 
professionals, caregiver, professional caregivers and, and people who are, you know, uh, touched by different, you know, health issues is that it's, it's, it's an invitation. It's a, it's a, it's a, am I, am I able to inspire to think about your reality in a different way? Yeah. Yeah. Rather than prescribe you yeah. a standardized way of doing it. Yeah. Or coaxing you into how I understand reality. Right. Yeah, right. so sh- that's part of showing up fully, and there's a there's a hint of that in a prescriptive. It's like I'm going to coax you to adopt what I believe is in your best interest, and and until I really inquire, I don't actually know that. Like I ha- yeah. there has to be some inquiry, but again, the typical inquiry is you've been diagnosed with X. This is what we do from a treatment protocol, so that we don't need any inquiry. The inquiry, the inquiry was already done, madam. Um, you are now just um, item peon number seven hundred thousand in the rung of what we do next for people. So there's that, and I think that's that's in a way antithetical to showing up. So that's a good roundabout for our original conversation. Thank you for sharing, and and thank you for being conscious in the way that you're you intend to show up for your clients. And mm. I'm pretty confident that uh, whatever it is that you're doing is permeating outwards and and then i feel like it's an invitation because i know spending time with you in my own dying process you're very inviting so i'll speak for myself not for anyone else but there's a deep uh, appreciation and um and a, and a lovingness quality that you show up with that allows me to show up as well and that's a that's a great thing mm-hmm.